hopefully the last two songs, if they did nothing else, reminded you that God loves you. He loves his people. He loves his people and he sends his son to die on a cross to redeem people. I don't know, do you you really get that? Jesus loves you. God loves you. I think we're tempted to like, yeah, I think that's true. I think that's true in my head. But I think he loves the people next to me more because they're better. And it's just not true. He loves you. And he loves you so much that when you get sidetracked and distracted and the little glittering diamonds and gold of the world fall in front of your eyes and you run after them. He's not trying to kill your joy and take good stuff out of your life when he comes and he rescues you back. He didn't give his commands so that, oh, man, I can't have any fun in this life. And why is he why does he want to mess with my good time? He wants to keep me from good stuff. See, that's the lie of the garden, right? He is a father who loves you enough to keep you from what will destroy you. He's a father who loves you enough to pursue you violently to keep you from the things that will destroy you. And that's what we're looking at in this text. And, yeah, it's a little hard and it's a little negative. I don't want you to think I get really excited about stuff like this. I don't. But what I see and what I want you to see is it's the tender words of a father who is on a mission to bring you back from the stuff that will kill you. And whatever it takes to get you back from that as his people, as his children, he's willing to do it. And so it's a warning. It's a warning. Don't go there. It's a warning. Come back. Let's pray. So, Father, as we look into your word today, help us to see that you love your glory and that you love your people. And that you love your people and you pursue them all the way to a cross. And you love your people and you pursue them with a cross to bring them back. God, help us to know you love us as your people. Every one of us, not just the people by us, not the people that we think are doing good at this thing, but us. And be won back by your affections, by your love, to be won back. Pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. So the book of 1 John, again, he's addressing some false teachers who have messed up the view of Christ and who have kind of minimized how important it is to walk in holiness, grace-driven holiness, not legalism. They've minimized that. And to write to a church and just say, church, settle down. It's okay. You can know that you have the eternal life that God offers. But he gave us from the very beginning. Here's one of my purposes. I want you to know, I want you to have fellowship, saving relationship with God through Christ in a way that it maximizes your joy. That's God's aim for your life. When he pursues you and he saves people, he saves them into relationship, saving relationship for the maximizing of our joy for all eternity. And so that's been his goal through the book. And he's gone through a chapter and a half saying, all right, you say you have the saving fellowship. Let's put it to the test. Light or darkness commands or live in his commands or don't live in his commands. Um, And so he's gone through these tests. And now he pulled out last week and he said, let me just encourage you. You're his faithful children. Here's what's true of you. You're adopted. You're forgiven. That's forever. That's true. You know him. You have a relationship with him. That's forever. That's true. You live in victory. You have overcome because he has overcome. That's true. It's forever. 
And now he gives another side of the coin. He goes from the encouragement to the faithful. Just rest in the truths that are yours in Christ. And the other side of the coin, he warns us. Don't go to the world. Don't fall in love. Don't treasure what this world offers. Because what the Father offers is so much better than that. So look at First uh, John two fifteen through 17 with me. First uh, John two fifteen through 17. He warns us against worldliness and falling in love with the world and falling in love with stuff and falling in love with its approval. And he warns us against it because ultimately if we if we fall for it, it'll destroy us and it'll destroy our relationships and it'll destroy our homes and it will destroy um, our lives and it'll destroy the people around us. So he's warning us to rescue us back from our love affair with the world. Let's look at it in verse (coughs) 15. Excuse me. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride of life is not from the father. But it is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. So falling in love with the world will lead to destruction. Let's look at it as we walk down. Loving the world and loving God are at odds with each other. Loving the world and loving God are at odds with each other. Here's the thing. And you've heard me say it and I hope you'll hear me say it as long as you will listen to me. We do what we love. We do what we love. Our speech, our life, our time, our focus, our attention, our money, they all are these overflowing streams pointing back to what we really love and what we really desire. We do what we love. And what we love most, what we worship most, will dictate everything. Because we are all worshipers. Another way to say that, we are all lovers who always worship. That is, we always love something. Something always has a hold of our heart. Something always captures our affections. Something always is loved by us and drives out into what we do and how we behave and how we talk and what we spend our money on and what we look at and what we spend our time consumed and focused on. And so it's either going to be God. And that's the point of the text. It's exclusive. It's either going to be God that has our highest affections and our loves. And it's going to look like generosity and sacrifice and love. And it's going to look like humility. It's going to look like the gospel. It's going to look like joy and patience and peace. Or it will be something else. Something else will own your heart and your affections. And you're going to live your life trying to make that thing work. And so here's how your relationships work in that case. As long as you're helping me get what I want... We're doing great in our marriage. We're doing great in our friendships. We're doing great in our dating relationships. We're doing great in our church relationships. But the minute you start to stand in the way of what I want, we got a problem, don't we? We do what we love. And when we love an idol, we are consumed with selfishness. We're consumed with what we want out of that idol. And when our idols get threatened, here's how we respond. When something pushes up against our idol, we get angry. And by the way, irritation isn't in the Bible. It's called anger. It's just a nice name for it, right? Frustration isn't in the Bible. You know what the the Bible's word for it is? It's anger. So it's called. Like, name it what it's called. So we run to anger or we run to fear. By the way, listen to me. We call it worry. Guess what the Bible calls it? 
fear, worry. It's sin. I'm just a little anxious. Sin. It's a way of responding to what we value most being threatened or being pushed against or putting being put in danger. We we fear, we worry, we're anxious or we escape. And we run to shopping or we run to food or we run to uh, lustful relationships or we run to pictures on our computer screen. We just run away from our problems because our idol is threatened. And the text is drawing us back. There is an opposition between loving the father and letting your heart love something else. So let's look at it. Do not love the world or the things of the world. It's a command. It's the only command in the text. And it could literally be read, stop loving the world. Like you've been captured by this, or maybe you were saved and come out of your previous life, but there's still an attraction in your heart for the world system and the fitting in with the world and the world stuff. And, and it's grabbed hold of you. And the, the text command is stop. Stop loving that stuff that you used to love. Stop loving that world that you used to love. Or it might just be the warning. And I think it's probably the stop, but it could also be the warning. Beware about falling in love with the world. And if you trace it through the passage, we see it traced out like this. There's two loves. There's the love of the world and there's the love of the father. And you will go one of those two routes. And when you go one of those two routes, the next level down is it will lead to a set of desires. And you will either have the desires of the flesh, the desire of the eyes, desire, the boastful pride of life and the stuff you have. Or the love of the father will produce desires that come from loving God. But it's not just two loves that lead to two desires. There's a closing point. There's two outcomes to those different ways of lives and those different loves. There's a passing away and everything you gave your life to burning and being wasted and a way of life that is eternal and leads to the eternal blessings of a father. And so that's the text. Let's look at it. Don't love the world. And so the word for love is that strongest form of love we have, uh, agape. And so it's something that was brought out of Greek culture. It was a super intense, strong form of love brought into the New Testament and poured into it with the meaning of Christian love, God kind of love. And so the way we've defined that in the past is it's treasuring something that leads you to sacrifice for it without needing anything in return. OK, so it is to place a high value, a treasuring on someone or something. God, people. In such a way that you sacrifice for those people or that thing or for God or for people. And it doesn't require me to get paid back for it. Right, so that's a God kind of love. It's a selfless kind of love. It's I treasure you so much or I treasure God so much that I'll just give my life for it and not think second, think a second time about it. I think the same definition holds. Don't love the world. It just turns in on itself. So don't treasure the world in a way that leads you to sacrifice yourself for the world, expecting something in return. So here's how it works. I love stuff. It's called materialism. And so I give my life, I work myself to the bone, and I get into unrealistic debt to have the world. Why do I do that? Because I expect the world to give me fulfillment. I expect the good life to come from the stuff I just bought. I expect something from the world when I love it enough to give myself to it. That's the way it works. Don't do that. It won't give it to you. Do not love the world. Do not give yourself over to the world and sacrifice yourself for the world. Thinking it's going to give you what you really want because it never can. Our idols always disappoint us. In the moment of the direst need of your life, your idols will always fail you. 
don't love the world. And so what is the world? What is it we're talking about here? The New Testament uses this word for world in three different ways. And so it may it may use it as the created universe, the the cosmos, the created universe. It may use it as the world of people, not bad, not good, just people. But in this case, in its most specified sense, the world is the world system that is opposed to God and alienated from God and separated from God. And so it is a world system that is separated from God and that is hostile towards God. Don't fall in love with a system that fights against God. And so when we think about the world, we're thinking about the social structures and we're thinking about the presuppositions and we're thinking about some of the religious practices and we're thinking about the media and we're thinking about entertainment and we're thinking about politics and government, all making up this unified system that is hostile towards God. And guess what? If it has a little R in parentheses by it, it's still hostile towards God. And if it has a little D with parentheses beside it, guess what? It's still hostile towards God because it is owned by the prince of the power of the air, the little G God of this present age. Don't love the world. Don't think your Messiah will arise from a political party. It never he never will. He already came. He went to a cross. He died. He rose again. He sits in heaven and he's coming back one day. And it doesn't matter. Matters, but it doesn't matter who we look to in the politics or media for our influence and for our redemption. It comes from Jesus. Don't love the world. Don't love the system that's behind the world. Meaning, don't give yourself over to being fitting in with the world, to making the world like you, to making the world say, oh, we accept you and we approve you and we think you church are so great. Don't give yourself to that. Because they never will. They never will. Don't love the world. It's hostile towards God. And then he goes on. So not just the world system in general, but also specific or the things of the world. So you can fall in love with the world system and its approval and fitting in and looking like it. Or you can just fall in love with the stuff the world offers. The bigger house, the shinier car, the more furniture that goes inside that bigger house, the iPhones. And the newest iPhone or maybe your Samsung and the newest Samsung might catch fire on you, but you still want it. They'll fix it eventually. Don't fall in love with the stuff that the world offers you. It's a trap. It's a trap. Here, come have me. Come fall in love with me. Come give your heart to me. But guess what? It will always fail you in the end. It will always crush your hopes in the end when you go to it in the time of need, when you think it's going to save you and you need it to save you. It won't. It won't. It won't be there when you desperately need it. And so loving the world and loving God are at odds with each other. And so it's a command not to let your heart get tied up in love with the world. Don't let your heart affections defect to the world and to what it offers you. There's nothing wrong with using the world. There's nothing wrong with being in the world. It's when our hearts gravitate to and latch on to something in the world. Did you know the advertising? Uh, I'm making sure Alan Amoson isn't here because he'd probably check my statistics. Did you know the advertising industry takes in $111 billion a year? And their whole purpose in life is to get you to want something so much you will sacrifice what you have to get it. Their whole mission in life is to say, you must have this for life to be good 
so that you'll go give your money to them and get it. $111 billion a year focused on your heart to want something and go buy it. Don't fall in love with the world. Don't fall in love with the stuff that this world offers. It's so prevalent. It surrounds us. It saturates us. And so we must be warned over and over again. Don't let your heart go there. Don't let your heart go there. Now, notice the last part of the verse. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Do you see how opposed they are to each other? It's kind of like James and James 4. Uh, you have not because you ask not or you ask amiss so that you can send it on your own pleasures. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is the enmity at God? And so to be a friend of the world makes me an enemy of God. The two fight each other. They're opposed to each other. And that's what we see here. If you love the world, the love of the Father isn't in you. And so that's either the love of God and the gospel doesn't belong to us. We're not saved. Or our love for God is not true or present. It's probably both, right? You can't love God and love the world at the same time. You can't love God. And if it's the persistent pattern of your life and your whole life is consumed with loving the world, you can't love the world and have the saving love of God resting on you at the same time. And so it's a warning to Christians, pull the, the tentacles of the world back out of your heart and it's a warning to say, if it's more prevalent in your life than you see, is there something, is there something wrong at the salvation level? Because we can't love the world and love God with the same heart at the same time. They're opposed to each other. The second thing that we see, being consumed with the world's stuff is opposed to desire for the Father. Being consumed with the world's stuff is opposed to our desire for the Father. So it's getting about that time of year for parents, right? Christmas is coming, so they roll out commercials. Newest toy, got to have it. It talks, it flashes, it beeps. It's got an electronic screen that you touch. And maybe your kids don't do this, but mine are. Oh, I want that, I want that, I want that. Guess what? Next commercial comes on. I want that, I want that, I want that. Next commercial. I want that, I want that, I want that. Then we'll walk through Walmart. Ooh, I want this. Ooh, I want that. Ooh, can I get this? And so here's our here's our patent response. Maybe for Christmas. You know what I know when I say that statement? They will have no clue what this thing was when the 20 other things that they've wanted in between here and there come around. They're not going to remember that box they were holding up that they just had to have that they were willing to pitch a fit for. We're like that, though, aren't we? We walk through the store of life and the store of relationships. Ooh, I want that. Ooh, I want that. Ooh, I want that. We're just a little more mature about it. Maybe. A little. And we have better justifications for ours, don't we? We can better justify our wants because we work hard. We can better justify what we need. I deserve a little break, you know. I deserve a little comfort that this thing provides. I deserve it. I'm wise with my money. We're just better at justifying our wants. We want that boyfriend or that girlfriend. We just have to have it. We want that marriage. We want that relationship. We want that new thing. We want that bigger house. We want that nicer neighborhood. We want the newest version. I was really excited. I made it three whole years with my last smartphone. Three. Before it went bad, I didn't just go get another one. But I was like, this is so great. Three years. 
All those three years, though, you know, I'm looking, ooh, ooh, version six came out. Ooh, version seven came out. Maybe I'll wait for version eight. Isn't that what you do? I justify it a little better. I don't say it out loud like my kids do. But I'm just enamored with the world. I'm enamored with what it offers. And so it's not whether the thing is good or bad. It's that it starts capturing our heart. And our idols start capturing our heart. I just want that job. I work so hard. I just want that promotion and that raise. Don't they realize I've been here the longest? And I'm going to get in our business as parents for a second, too. We do this with our kids. And our kids become our gods. Oh, I just want them to be the smartest. What is it going to take to make them smart? What's it going to take to make them the top of their class? What's it going to take to get them into college and the best college? Oh, or I really want them to be great at sports. What's it going to take to make them the best on their team? What's it going to take to get them into college and play? What's it going to take for them to go pro? And it doesn't matter how many camps and how much money and how many hotel rooms it takes and how many uh, other things we have to neglect. If Oh, if I could just, my life will be saved if my kids make it in sports. Or maybe it's security. I just got to helicopter over them and keep them safe. If I can just keep them safe. It's my job to keep them safe from this world because there's so much out there. But what we've done is we've detached a part of our heart that belongs to the Father and looked to our kids to provide us something that only God can provide us. And so, yes, should I want my kids to get courageous? I expect them to live up to their potential and work diligently at everything that they're supposed to do. But am I going to drive them? I hope I may, but I shouldn't. I shouldn't. Or do I want them to do great in sports? Yes, I love competition. I just love it. You've seen me out at Upward. I had to, I had to resign. I do. I love it. Am I going to drive them and just consume their life with it? I hope not. Do I want my kids to be safe? Yes, I do. Yes, I do. But where do I draw the walls? They end up becoming our God. And whatever captures your heart will control your life. That's not original to me. Whatever captures your heart will control your life and you'll live for it. Let's look at it because here we go. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, the pride of life is not from the Father. It's not origin. It's origin in the Father. Its origin is in the world. Its source is in the world. And so as you bracket out the passage, all the stuff that is in the world, it doesn't find its source in God. It finds its source in the world. And he's speaking specifically about a set of desires. And so, again, the created world is not bad. We're talking about a world system. And this good stuff of God that he gave us is not bad. What's wrong with it is it's when our sinful nature takes something good from God and perverts it and distorts it and latches on to it in the place of God. And that's when it becomes a problem. And here's the scariest thing to me in Christian circles. So many of our gods look Christian. So many of our idols look like Christian idols. See, it'd be a lot easier if I could go to your house and you had a little wooden thing on your mantle and I could say, idol, yes, you should get rid of that. Let's burn it and throw it in the river like they did in the Old Testament. But the problem is your idols are in your heart and my idols are in my heart and they look so Christian. They look like hard work and self-reliance. They look like self-righteousness. They look like our families. It's so hard to root out an idol that looks so Christian. And ours do. 
It's so hard to root out an idol when, hey, I just I look like my neighbors. I've got the stuff my neighbors have. I don't live extravagantly. It looks so Christian. The desires of the flesh. So desires is not necessarily a, a negative word. It could be good or it could be bad. It is to crave something. It is desire something. And the object is what makes it sinful or the object is what makes it righteous. And so do not desire the things of the flesh. So your flesh is your sinful nature. And it's always wanting something, craving something, yearning for something. Maybe it is a possession. Maybe it is respect. Maybe it's the respect that you're supposed to be owed. Maybe it's love. Maybe it's friendship. Maybe it's acceptance. Whatever it is, it's craving. But that craving for your flesh to be satisfied, it's not from God. It's not from God. And we're tempted to think, because a lot of this is, the, a lot of your translations would say the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life. We're tempted to think, well, that just applies to, you know, to lust. But that's not it. It's when we look into the fleshly realm and the fleshly desires to satisfy ourselves. And it might be food. I look to food to satisfy me and I overeat. Or more so now, I look to organic food to save me. Because if I live organically, I'll have the good life. And that's fine if you want to be organic. I just don't want you to trust organic to save you. Or the next greatest Christian diet that they're going to sell to you, millions of copies, it's going to be a fad and it's going to be gone and scientists are going to tell you how awful it was in a couple of years. It's going to save me because I'm going to look better and people will accept me if I look better. But it was a Christian diet. It's okay. The desires of the flesh that we want to either through overeating or undereating or the right kind of eating, find some sort of atonement in that. And you just can't. Or maybe it is in sex, or maybe it is in lust, or maybe it is in relationships, or maybe it is in food or exercise or whatever else. But I have a craving, a natural craving for something, some love of the world that's producing this, or it's the desires or lust of the eyes. The primary way that the outside world gets into your heart is through your eyes. The primary way that you walk through this world and fall in love with something is because you see it. That's why car dealerships are in such prominent positions, except for the really good ones that are only on North Side, and and uh, you know those don't count. But there's a reason they put their nicest and shiniest cars up at the street, right? Like, this is the ones you want in this area. So the trucks line the whole Franklin front of Franklin, right? Why? Because that's what we want down here. That's what I want, right? The eyes are the means for the outside stuff to get into our hearts. It's just the primary way. That's why we drive through neighborhoods and we look at those houses or we have magazines dedicated to showing us how much better your house could be. And look, that's why we have show after show saying, if you got this paint, man, if you got this paint, you'd have this kind of house. Let's just swap rooms. The desire of the eyes and what he's pointing to is that the eyes become the windows through which the world gains access to our heart. But it also on top of that, I think what it means is we evaluate things by their appearance. Do not evaluate things by the way they look on the surface. And that's our problem. We don't look at what's really valuable. We don't do an evaluation on this thing and say, yes, that's worth it or it's not. And it's most evident in our culture when we look at how we look and how we dress and how much attention we pay to our appearance. We want people to value how we look without ever looking past how we look into what's going on in our heart. Is our heart beautiful? Is our heart handsome? Is our heart fit? When we give in to the desires of the eyes, we evaluate things by how they look versus the real value that's underneath them. 
the desires of the flesh, the desire of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life. This is the idea of vainglory, self-glory through possessions. The word for life there most likely means possessions. And so it's boasting, it's pride in our possessions. But more than our possessions, it's pride in what our possessions accomplish for us. You see, I gain status by my house in my neighborhood, or I gain status by uh, the car I drive, or I gain status by the job I have. I gain status. Why, that's why your first question when you meet somebody, hey, I'm Chris, what do you do for a living? We measure people by the external standards of their status in society, by their jobs and by their possessions. And the warning against vainglory and boasting in that is we begin to measure ourselves by that. We measure ourselves by what we have and what we do. Not by who God says we are and what God has done. That's what we do. And then if I measure myself that way, I have to measure you that way because I've got to find a way to measure up or measure over you. And the point of the text is do not give in to the boasting pride that comes from your possessions, that comes from the social standing that your possessions get for you. Don't let yourself go there. That's not from the Father, it's from the world. There's this whole other set of desires that belong to loving God. There's this whole set of desires that come from generosity and love and sacrifice and humility and joy and peace and patience and service and all these. There's this whole other set of desires that originate with the Father, that a love for the Father produces in us. But what he's addressing is there are a whole set of desires that when you love the world, these desires will be part of your life, fitting in with the world, measuring up to the world, measuring yourself by the world. But he closes with one more point because that's, there's an outcome to these two different loves and these two different ways of life. The world is temporary, but God's ways lead to eternal blessing. The world is temporary, but God's ways lead to eternal blessing. Have you ever noticed how everything wears out? Your clothes wear out. Car dents, rust dings, starts to make weird noises in the engine that you don't know what it is unless you know what you're talking about. It happens. Your purses, your, your, my clothes all have like these little, you know, they start to wear when they get washed too many times. It just happens. It just wears out. You ever notice how you have to buy a new phone every two years? I made it three. Every three years. You ever notice that? The screen cracks. The thing starts running slow and bogging down. It can't handle uh, all the stuff coming through it. It all wears out. It all rusts. It all corrodes. And I think that's such an important principle. The world is wasting away. Everything you love about the world is in a state of decay. And the important principle is this. Your little stuff doesn't just wear out. The big stuff wears out. And if you've given your life to it, you'll have wasted it. If you've given your life to have stuff, that stuff is going to corrode and it's going to rot and it's going to burn one day. But if you've given your life, there are other things that are not temporary. They're eternal. If you give your life to people, people are eternal, one way or the other. And if you'll give your life for God's glory among people, if you'll give your life so that people enhance in the glory of God and enrich in the glory of God, it won't be wasted on you. If you give every bit that you can possibly give of your life to loving people in Jesus' name, your life will not be wasted. It will not be wasted. If you sacrifice your comforts, if you sacrifice something that you have to have to give it, to go, to love 
people. It won't be wasted. And if you give your life to loving God, it won't be wasted. It's eternal. His blessings are eternal. And he gives us these tastes now to remind us the world is passing away. That he's eternal and his blessings are eternal and his pleasure is eternal and his joy is eternal. If you give yourself to it. And that's what this last verse says. There's two different loves, father and world. They produce two different desires, flesh, eyes, boasting in what you've got and where you've made it. The desires of the father, but they all ultimately lead to an outcome. One is wasted. Whoever dies with the most toys still dies. A hundred percent mortality rate last I checked. Well, actually, what is there? Two guys that made it. Elijah and Jesus made it back out forever. 99.999% mortality and includes you because you don't have any promises to the, to the contrary. Unless Jesus comes back. I'm going to talk myself out of my point in a second. <laughs> the world's passing away. And so, most likely, no matter how much you exercise and how organic you eat, you are going to not make it out of this life alive. You're just not. And so when you step out of this life, will what you've given your life to have been wasted and it all burned? This world is passing away. All the desires that you have in this world, they're passing away. Just like in verse 8, the darkness is passing away because the true light is already shining. It's passing away. It's temporary. You've given your whole life to temporary. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. When we look at Jesus' life, especially in the Gospel of John, I came to do the will of my Father. I came to do the will of my Father. I came to do the will of my Father. And the invitation to those who follow Jesus through the book of 1 John, the invitation is come and live your life the way Jesus lived his life. Come model your earthly life over after Jesus' earthly life. And that's built around the will of God. And here's the promise. If you build your life on the will of God, it won't be wasted. It's, it, it lasts forever. Do you see that? Whoever does the will of God abides forever. And so you will send deposits into eternity when you live this way. And you will have deposits follow you into eternity after you. If you live your life around people and if you live your life around the glory of God, you won't waste it. It'll be forever. And so I just want to put so starkly before you these two ways of lives and these two heart dispositions and these two sets of affections and these two different loves. They ultimately have two different outcomes. And one is wasted and it just melts away into nothing. But the other goes forever and forever and forever into the eternal pleasures of God in a way that it shapes eternity because you gave your life to eternal things. So I just want to press on you there Loving the world will kill you. It'll break you here and it'll break your relationships. It'll leave you failed, hopeless and despair. But falling in love with the Father will never do that. Running after Jesus will never do that. Let's look at a few practical things as we close. First, check your love for the world. It's in all of us. None of us is immune As Calvin said, the heart is a perpetual factory of idols. Your heart is always looking for something to fall in love with. And so you don't have to wonder if it's there. You've just got to go find out what it is because it's there. So what gets you excited? What do you talk about the most with the most passion? What do you give your life and your money and your time to? 
check what you love and you can just trace that thing up to your functional God or to God himself and his pleasures being what most excites you. Second, fight lesser desires with a greater desire. You are going to crave something because you were made to crave. You are going to crave something enormous because you were made to crave what is eternal. And so the answer to the Christian life is don't do this. Stop thinking about that. Quit wanting this bad stuff. The answer to the Christian life is give yourself to a greater desire. Be consumed with a greater pleasure. Pursue a greater joy. And so my invitation to you is not just do Christian. Don't don't just do Christians. Just say no. Do Christians say yes to so much better. What the world offers you is a Big Mac of mystery meat, right? You go to McDonald's, you're not sure 100 percent of what you're getting. Maybe you are. I'm not. And so here you go. Here's a Big Mac. Doesn't it look good? Well, maybe I am hungry. I always crave. But why would I want that when there's like this longhorn filet? The the big one sitting next to it. Why would I want mystery meat? But that's what the world offers us, right? And so the Christian life is, I'm not going to eat Big Macs. No, the Christian life is, I want steak. I want to feast on the eternal pleasures of God because they last and they sustain and they don't fail me. Whereas this always does. I leave hungry and I leave. Can you say the F word in church? A-T, not the other F word. Empty calories. Let's move on. Cultivate love for God. You can tell I didn't sleep much this weekend. Cultivate a love for God. Ultimately, we become what we behold. Whatever you spend your life gazing at, focused on, attention to, effort to, you're going to become like that. And so over time, if you will cultivate in your life a gazing on God through his word, a gazing on God in prayer, a gazing on God through gathering for worship, if you'll focus your life on that, ultimately you will become more and more and more like him. That's what Second Corinthians tells us. Beholding the glory of the Lord, we are transformed from one degree of glory to the next. When we behold the beauty of Jesus, it changes us to be like Jesus. When we behold the beauty of the world, it changes us to be like it. Last thing, go deeper with one. Um, You see that application on your back? I want to ask you to do it. Because we can't fight the idolatry in our hearts alone. We can't fight our love affair with the world on our own. We will lose. We've got a $110 billion industry stacked against us, along with a sinful nature and a very active devil and a world system to boot. Not going to win alone. We need each other. We need the mirror put on our hearts. We need people to say, no, look up in the beauty of Jesus because you're looking at the beauty of some thing that's going to kill you. Come see the beauty of Jesus with me. Here's how I saw him this week in the word. We need each other. And so pray, identify the person, pray, ask them, set up your first meeting. Hey, if it doesn't work out and y'all both, that's okay. Start back over and pray again and ask again and meet again because we need each other in the fight of faith. Let's pray. And so, Father, we thank you that your love, your steadfast love is better than life. And we would rather have a day in your courts than a thousand days anywhere else. Oh, Father, make our hearts believe that is true. Make our hearts believe that that is true. Rescue us from us. Rescue us from our love affair with the world. Rescue us from its tentacles that grip our hearts over and over and over again. Rescue us, Father, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.